introduction to the church. And we are, oh, one more other thing. Our women's ministry, we're kind of re rebooting that, relaunching that. And if you are interested in being on that kind of core team, relaunching that, come talk to me and we'll connect you with that team. Okay, um, so we're on the third part of the series called Gather. Today I want to look at our calling as an ecclesia, as a, a church, uh, where, and this word ecclesia is the Greek word for the church. And it, me, it simply means those that are called out and gathered together. And so we're, we've been looking at that. La the last couple weeks we talked about the ecclesia is supposed to be on the front edge moving forward. We're big and we're bold and we're taking territory and the gates of hell will not prevail against this thing called the ecclesia of the church. And we also realize that we can't be ecclesia by ourselves. The very nature of the term means us gathering together. So I am not ecclesia by myself in my home. It's when we gather together that we are the church. And so we've been discussing what is the church, what does it look like, what's the purpose, what are the, what's behind it. And so today I want to talk about what our calling is. And our calling is two things. It's relevant practice and orthodox doctrine. And so um, I want to unpack that a little bit for us today. Some of you are thinking, oh, that's, some of that sounds fun. I don't really know where we're going. But, but hold on, we're going to take you on a little bit of a journey today. Um, and so really our calling has everything to do with, so relevant practice is about the mission of God moving forward in the community to those that are unchurched and dechurched. And I use those terms a lot, but if you've got friends at your, at your work office or your, your literal neighbors next to you and they don't go to church, they're either unchurched or dechurched. And our church, what we want to do is we want to provide a space for those kind of people. So when we talk about relevant practice, it's not 50% relevant practice and 50% orthodox doctrine. It's 100% of each of those. We will be 100% dedicated to having a relevant practice, to being, being people that are willing to step out, take risks, reach our neighbors for Jesus, and do that in a real practical way, as well as we're going to have 100% orthodox doctrine, okay? So I'll define some of those terms a little bit more. But the church, this ecclesia, we don't exist for ourselves. Just hold that thought in your, mo in your mind just for a moment. We don't exist for ourselves. The church is the only organization that doesn't exist for its members. We exist for those who are far from God. We gather together, we worship as an ecclesia, but we do that for a purpose, for reaching those who are far from God. The ecclesia is simply here to bring the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus, to every crack and corner of this world. So what do we do? We, got, we go to the wide open places. And I want you to know, churches as a whole, if you said, where do we go? We go to wide open places, but I want you to know the vineyard and many other churches out there, many other churches that are gathering here in San Dimas today, we also go to places that everybody else is running away from. As the early 1900s uh, missionaries, uh, he was from England, he, British missionary C.T. Studd said, some want to live within the sound of a church bell, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Within a yard of hell, every crack and corner of this world, that's who we are here for, to reach those who are far away from God. And as we do this, as we are going to those difficult places, we have to remember we have to be committed to the truthfulness of the Bible as our only foundation for the amazing kingdom life that God's called us to. So we're going to have an orthodox doctrine. It means truthful, filled with truth, uh, which it means we're going to be thoroughly biblical and faithful to our Bible. Fully faithful to our Bible. This word here, um, I always say it this way, this is our book. I say it all the time, like, I, I like books. But this is my book. Okay, does that make sense? The Bible's our book. A 
above everything else, the Bible's our book. Do you guys know G.K. Chesterton? Okay, some of you guys probably heard, from, heard of him. He's an author, wrote tons of books. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy. He wrote Everlasting Man. Um, he wrote a lot of great, um, great books. But he was meeting with some of his friends, and they were having this conversation late in the evening. And one of the questions came up, you know, if you're stranded on the desert island, what's the one book you would have with you if you could have one book? And so one of, so these are like all authors and big thinkers. And the first guy said, I would take, so G.K. Chesterton's there. And he, the one first guy says, I would bring the complete works of Shakespeare. And then another of them knew that G.K. Chesterton was going to choose the Bible. So one of the other guys in the group said, well, I would bring the Bible. And he kind of spit it out really fast. So G.K. couldn't actually say it first, right? And so um, everybody else said their book, and then they all turned to G.K. Chesterton, and they said, how about you? And he said, I would choose the Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. That's good, right? <laughs> it's a true story. And, what I, and, and then he said, yeah, of course I bring my Bible. The Bible's our book, people. The Bible's our book. And our focus on the Bible is something very specific. It's the main and plain of the Bible. And it, I don't know if you've been a part of a vineyard church long, but John Wimber, the founder of the vineyard, said, we as a, he's talking to vineyard pastors, we have to stick with the main and plain. So what is the main and plain? Um, if you are brand new to faith and you start reading your Bible, what is the main and plain of scriptures? We're not going to, vineyard churches are not going to be, we're, we will never find some obscure text, one line in the Old Testament, and make some big theological grid out of it. That's not us. We want to stick with the main and plain message of Jesus. Okay? And so some, you know what it looks like? It looks like the main and plain for us as a church would be like embracing God's grace and love in our lives. Do you know that you would live differently if you really pushed into that? <gasps> and so we want, that's main and plain. We want you to embrace that. You know what else we want you to, the main and plain of Scripture when you read here? You're going to say, you cannot read scripture and say, yeah, I can hold bitterness and anger in my heart towards my neighbor or friends or relatives or, or people at church. You, it can't happen. That's main and plain stuff. And Wimber used to say there's always this main and plain stuff. The church, we have all this knowledge, but we don't embody it and live it out. And so John would say, stick with the main and plain, pastors, vineyard pastors. Stick with the main and plain. There's so much main and plain for us. Everything, just loving our neighbors. That's main and plain, and it's really difficult. And how many of us do that well? So we want to stick with the main and plain. So we're going to have orthodox doctrine and a heart for those not being reached by existing churches today. And if I could quote our Vineyard Values booklet, therefore we promote a creative, entrepreneurial, innovative approach to ministry that is faithful to Jesus and expressive of his heart to reach those who are far away from God. That's kind of in a nutshell sums up so much of what I'm trying to say today. So those who were hurt by the church, hurt by life, who decided that they would be better off without Jesus and without his church those are the very people why we're, this ecclesia is gathered together for. That's why we're here. To reach people for Jesus. To reach a lost, hurting world today. Those are the people we exist for. That's why we're here. And this heart for the unchurched and dechurched drives how we do ecclesia. It drives how we do that. Uh, for example... We don't really care how you're dressed today. Um, it doesn't matter if you're in shorts or blue jeans or a collared shirt or suit and tie. It doesn't really matter. As long as you're wearing something, we're fine. <laughs> Just wear something. We're fine with that. 
Um, but the reason why is we want everyone to feel welcome. We want every single person to feel like they belong. Uh, there was, I, some of, just, you know, some of this message, I shared a sermon about a year and a couple months ago, and part of this is inter, interlaced, but uh, I think I shared this story with you then. But there was a family who attends a vineyard in the Midwest, and they visited their family on the East Coast, and their family went to this mainline church, okay? Kind of like more fancy, everybody's dressed up more. And they knew this about their relatives, so they decided, uh, this family from a vineyard church in the Midwest, they said, we'll, get, we'll, we'll bring some extra dress clothes for church. And they did, and they all got dressed up. And the man had nice slacks on, okay? Nice, like, pleated in the front, looks very fancy. He had a collared shirt, and he tucked it in. And then he wore, it was kind of cold, so he wore a sweater vest. Now, I want you to know that that's high class in my book. Like, like, that's like way up. That's like, that's like full, that's like wedding, okay? That's how, that's, that's how, that's good, okay? So they get to the church, and they're meted by a greeter in the back. And this greeter says this, I would like to direct you to your seats. And they said, okay. And one person took the husband and said, you come with me. And the other person took the lady and said, you come with me. They took the lady down to the main floor, kind of like in the middle section, and had her, gave her her seat. Then they took him and said, follow me, and they went up the stairs, up into the balcony. And this man's like, what is going on? I don't understand something, okay? So finally he was, he's like, I want to go to church and sit next to my wife. Like, this is weird enough that there's all this weird formalness. Uh, how do I just sit with my wife? And so he went to the usher and said, I'm really confused why you would seat my wife downstairs and me up in the balcony. And the usher said this, Sir, it's obvious you didn't have a tie on. No tie, no seat on the main floor. That's This is true. <laughs> Needless to stay, this couple did not stay for the service itself. They were like, we can't. Are you kidding me? This is what this is about? Is this, is, this is what the ecclesia has been reduced to? Like making sure you wear a tie on Sunday morning? What about heart issues? What about soul issues? What about what's going on in here? Because we don't want people to feel like that. We want people to come in here and feel comfortable. Feel comfortable. That's why we have coffee and bagels in the morning. That's why you guys get to drink coffee in our service, even though you spill it on our carpets all the time. <laughs> That's why we have lunch together. That's why we sing current worship songs. We want you to connect with Jesus in every possible way. That's why we display Tom's artwork around the church. We want people to connect with God in a way that they understand. We want to be culturally relevant for the sake of God's mission in the world today. So, John, up till this point, some of you are tracking with me, and others of you are saying, eh, I don't know what about this whole thing. So, I want to show you a text today, and this text is crazy if you can hold on with me, okay? I want you to know this text pushes me to do culturally relevant mission more than I ever have because it is it pushes me beyond even what I feel comfortable with. Let's just put it that way, and I'll explain it to you as we go. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. Um, here Paul describes, uh, and Paul desires to connect the Greeks in Athens who are worshiping the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses, and he wants to connect those people to Christ. Okay? So, uh, if you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be up on the overhead. Here is verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. So Paul goes, and he goes to Greece. He goes to Athens. He's there. He's walking around Athens, and he's observing all of these 
idols that are to that are not to Jesus, okay? And he's and it's it's he's deeply troubled. And I would hope that any of us, if we walked into worship of foreign gods, we would our hearts would sink on some level, right? Our hearts would be troubled. So Paul's heart is troubled. Now we're going to go to verse 18. He also had a debate with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Then he told them about Jesus and his resurrection. They said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Verse 19. And here is a breathtaking invitation to the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. The invitation's clear. There's an invitation from the people living in this city, and the invitation is, is it possible to understand what you're talking about? Can you explain your faith in a way that I can understand it? Or is it just for religious insiders? And that's a question that we all have to ask. Is, are we set up just for religious insiders that get it? Or are we willing to step out and say, what is it, what is, what is our, all that we're communicating, what does it look like for the outsider, the unchurched and dechurched of our world today? Is this just for inside people, or is it maybe for us too? In Athens, in Greece, and Paul had a choice. He could stand on the outside of culture and denounce it as full of idols because it was. But he doesn't do that. Or he can look at the people and realize that this city is full of seekers, full of people made by God, loved by God, created in God's image, and God is actually reaching out to them, trying to get their hearts and minds. Paul said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. I love that Paul does this. Do you know what he's doing? He's creating a positive bridge for the gospel to their culture. I can see that in every way you're so religious. He's encouraging them. Okay? Because it wouldn't have done any good if he started to cast judgment or quote scriptures. The, Greek, the Greeks in Athens had little knowledge, if any knowledge, of the Hebrew scriptures. And then Paul continues, he says, I perceive that you're very religious in every way. You're very religious. For, uh, for as I passed along... And observe the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. So there's tons of idols all over the place, and one of these physical locations had inscribed in it to the unknown God. Because they worshipped all the gods and goddesses, and they had one that was like, well, here's one just in case we missed all the others, and I'll explain that in a minute. That, therefore, what... Therefore, you worship as unknown. This is what I proclaim to you. Do you see the bridge that he's making to these people? Now, this altar that Paul's talking about here, it was built because no other gods had been successful in taking away a plague um, earlier. And so what they did, they had this horrible plague. Everybody was dying. They worshipped the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses to no avail. And guess what they do? Let's make an inscription, a space for this unknown god that we don't know. And you know what they did? They made this altar, and they worshipped this unknown god. And guess what happened to the plague? It went away. So in their very history... They're thinking, huh, there might be something, something to this unknown God. The plague stopped. And Paul studied and he understood their culture. Then Paul shares the heart of the gospel 
And at the end, he says this in verse 27. His, God's purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Though he is not far off from any of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. We exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are, we are his offspring. So now earlier, Paul was debating Greek philosophers. Now he's quoting them and he's building bridges towards them. Now, I want to point out a couple things here. Um, so this text about live in him, we live, move, and have our being. Um, that text itself, there's two parts in this text that Paul's quoting, okay? This is one of them, in him we live, move, and have our being. And it's from a poem from a Cretan pagan philosopher named Epidemius in 600 BC. So 600 before, years before Jesus. And the context for that, in him we live, move, and have our being, it's directed towards Zeus. Okay, just let that sit for just a moment. Um, how many people grew up in the church and you sang a song, and I have a horrible voice, but I'm going to try. You guys remember this song? In him we live and move and have our being. In him, anybody? Okay, one, two, okay, okay, a couple, okay, I was afraid that I was, you guys are good, okay. So, if you sang that song pre-Paul, if you sang it in Athens 2,050 years ago, everybody would be like, oh, you're worshiping Zeus, huh? Guess what Paul did? Paul comes in, and he's saying, God's not far from any of us. In him we live, move, and have our being. And when he said that, the whole audience probably said, oh, he's quoting one of our poems right now. Yep. But he's not talking about Zeus. He's talking about the unknown God. And, and it caught people off guard. Now, isn't that crazy? Now, to the, it, but here's what he did. Paul took this cultural poem and re he reframed it and pointed the whole thing to Jesus. Because guess what? Really, in him we live, move, and have our being is exactly true about Jesus. Right? So, the next part, um, and then Paul at the end here, he says this, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So we are his offspring is from a Sicilian Stoic philosopher named Radatus, and he was born in 310 B.C. And the poem that Paul's quoting from, I want to read you that because we still have the whole poem to this day. Here's what it says. Just hold on to your seat just for a moment. We are going somewhere, okay? Here's what he said. This, Paul's quoting this, this text. Let us begin with Zeus, whom we all mortals never leave unspoken. From every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of his presence. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are his offspring. Here's what Paul does here. He takes a cultural, popular cultural poem that's directed towards Zeus, and he reframes it, and he points it in a different direction towards Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now, today we miss the power of this text because, we, well, as some of your poets have said, but we, back 2,000 years ago, they knew exactly what the poem was talking about. We miss it. We miss the power of this text today because we're so far removed from it. So Paul takes this popular cultural poem, it was probably a song at the time, directed towards a false god, towards Zeus, and he reframes it and points it to Jesus and says, we are God's, Jesus' offspring. Paul has no problem taking pagan cultural norms and pointing them to Christ, and through it, transforming culture. Now, the end result of this, I want you to know, in verse 34, we have new believers in this new city. New believers in Jesus because of Paul's efforts in connecting with the culture. Um, the early church took Paul's example and 
other examples from the life of Christ, and they engaged with culture for the sake of God's mission. Um, Early Americans did the same thing. We took texts like this and said, how do we give the gospel to people that have never heard about Jesus before or those that are unchurched, those who are de-churched? How do we do that? Um, So the early church did this. They took the Roman Winter Solstice Festival, which is all about worshiping Greek gods, and they turned it into Christmas. Did you know that? They took this holiday... And today we don't really have a Roman winter solstice, do we? We have Christmas. But they put, they tied those things together. The early church said, let's worship Jesus in this festival. We're not going to worship false gods, but we're going to worship Jesus. And we're going to celebrate and party and have a great time. The American church historically has followed Paul's, historically we've also followed followed Paul's example. Um, In the 1730s, Charles Wesley came on the scene from Savannah, Georgia. So John Wesley's brother. um, And he would write songs for the church to sing in church. And the vast majority of his early songs, the vast majority, were all to the, they were all taken from bar drinking songs. And he just rewrote the words to point to Jesus. That's all he did, like the vast majority. Now, he wrote 5,000 songs, but the vast majority of his early songs, he just said, oh, they sing this in the bar. Maybe they would feel comfortable with the same tune, but we'll just rewrite the words. And people came into the church and said, oh, that's, that seems familiar to my heart and soul. Huh. And then they start singing about Jesus. Okay. Do you guys get what I'm trying to say today? This is, I mean, this is a, a, a difficult one, but it's one that's really important. Because how we frame ourselves in relationship to the rest of society is really, really important. I share this in our Vineyard 101 class, but uh, D.L. Moody, like the Prince of Preachers, Chicago, people loved his sermons, okay, loved them. And one day... He heard that this guy, he met a guy named Iris Sankey. Iris Sankey played the reed organ. At the time, the reed organ was only played in bars. Okay, that's the only place that, today we think of the reed organ, we're like, that's like a holy instrument that the Apostle Paul probably played. It's the only place where we have an organ today. But back in the day, it was used as a bar drinking instrument only. So D.L. Moody was like, look at all these people connecting in community at the bar. What if we brought that reed organ into the church? And the day that he did that, they played the reed organ. Everybody sang with the songs. The first time that this has ever been introduced to the church. And some people loved it. And the majority of people hated it. They're like, what are you doing? Are you kidding? This is our church. This is the ecclesia. How could we do that? It's going to damage the church. Now, it's funny today because the organ's only a church instrument. Um, one of the letters from D.L. Moody's congregants said this. D.L. Moody, you need to repent and turn back to God because what you're doing is wrong. That reed organ wheezes blasphemies from the very bowels of hell itself. Turn back to God, D.L. Moody. Now, it's funny to me all these years later because D.L. Moody's like this most famous preacher of all preachers. And yet he's being accused of being, um, not being authentic and real before God and like turning the church away from Jesus. <laughs> Jesus said this in Matthew five thirteen: You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it loses its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world, and a city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everybody in the house. Guys, the church is called to be light to the world. 
We don't exist for ourselves. So why do we fight over being relevant in the church today? And let me just, this is my last kind of thought. I've introduced this thought to you before, but I, it's important, and I, I think it'll help bring, crystallize everything together. Okay, so the debate is about different ways of looking at the world. And we have two main perspectives. We have, like, what we call the separatists and the conformists. Um, Judah, can you help me with this? Come here. This is my son, Judah. Can you just hold, hold this, Judah, for us? So the separatists, okay? So there's a whole category of church people that are, like, that they would, they might not use this term, but there's kind of this idea of the separatist nature. Um, so they don't want to get dirty. They feel like you can cut, catch uncleanness like you catch a cold, Okay. And so they withdraw as much as possible from society. They have their own fitness clubs and phone books and neighborhoods and restaurants and on and on. All media is bad, so we burn every, they burn everything. Everything to do with the world. Now, the separatist view has led them to confuse the world with worldliness. And although the Bible rejects worldliness, it does not condemn the world. God, for, God loves the world, right? John 3.16 stuff. But the separatists point to this other group that's going to be over here. Michael, can you help me with this one? But the separatists, keep this folded for me. Don't. The separatists point the, to this other group, and they say, they're watering down the gospel. Are you kidding me? You're watering it down. You're becoming worldly. You're assimilating into culture. You've sold out to the world. How dare you? And they stand all like hot and holy and like my way is the right way, okay, over here, okay? So um, there was a separatist church in Ohio that took out an advertisement in the Cincinnati Herald, and this is what they said. They blasted what they called worldly churches. So this is an advertisement for a church that was a separatist-type church. Here's what they said. Do you want gospel rock music and short sermons filled with humor? Are you looking for a church with, church with low enough standards so that your teens will want to attend? Do you desire a church that focuses on emotional issues instead of biblical theology? Are you looking for such a place? Sorry to disappoint you. When you get tired of worldly churches, come visit us. Okay? So that was their attempt at reaching an unbelieving world. Okay? Now the assumption was this. That when the church engages with culture, culture is going to take over. We, so we have to protect ourselves. We have to put a barrier around us. Okay? And everything that, that we have and own. Do you know that Jesus never believed this? Jesus was never afraid of culture or uncleanness. Actually, Jesus taught this. That kingdom life, life in God's kingdom here and now, is much more contagious than uncleanness? Just sit on that thought for a moment. It's amazing. Kingdom life is more contagious than uncleanness. Absolutely. And all, I think the world's waiting for some people to just show them this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. It's a party. It's amazing. The separatists, they fail to be light and they because they condemn the world and they look down upon um, all these other churches, uh, and they remove themselves. They fail to be light mostly because they hide away. They remove themselves. They don't want to be tainted, okay? Uh, but Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. You can't take light and hide it underneath a basket. You can't do that. We can't hide the ecclesia anymore. And if I could say this, the ecclesia has to rise up and maybe be the brightest we've ever been, the boldest we've ever been, because there's a whole world that needs Jesus. And it's up to us. It's up to us. So there's another way of looking at the world, and open yours up. And this is called the conformist side of things. The conformist totally fits into culture without ever challenging it. For them, everything goes. 
don't worry about it. It's all good. It's all okay. It doesn't matter that we are an exact representation of the world, but we believe. I believe in Jesus, and therefore nothing else changed in my life or anything around me, but I'm okay with, you know, I have this relationship with God. I have this personal relationship. Uh, the conformist fits in a culture without ever challenging it, but Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it loses its flavor? And that's what's exactly happening with the conformist side. The conformist fails to be salt because they're an exact representation of this world. But the conformist, what they do is they point their fingers over here and they condemn the other side and they condemn it. They say, you're out of touch. You're motivated by law and judging. You can't, you, you're not reaching anybody for Jesus. You're all, all by yourself. You're motivated by the wrong things. You're against everything. You have no joy in your life. Look. And to be honest, they don't, right? And I want you to know, neither one of these is a position that if we're going to be salt and light, we can hold on to. So give them a big hand. Good job, guys. If we are going to be the ecclesia, ecclesia that God in intended us to be, there has to be another option, and it's a, there's a third way. That third way, I want to call is being, nope, um, it's being a faithful presence being faithful presence being hope in the middle of despair being the hands and feet of jesus in a real practically practical way where we're engaging culture and yet we have unique distinctives that say we are we are jesus's people and we're following jesus so we are unique in every way so a faithful, I'm calling us to be a faithful presence in our world today. Having a passionate, vibrant faith, a passionate faith in Jesus, and being culturally relevant. So we're called to engage culture in a way that honors God's calling in our lives to be missional. It's what Jesus calls salt and light. So sociologist Christian Smith said this, the church best thrives distinct from, yet engaging with wider society. The church best thrives distinct yet engaging with wider society um, so let me share what this looks like for you um, we talked about the reed organ um, i grew up in a church where i worship god but the whole worship experience for me there was like this major disconnect in my heart with whenever we sang songs in my church growing up so i remember this moment and it was in college, and I, I found, I went to this bookstore, and they had a rack of CDs, and it said, uh, Vineyard Worship Music, okay? And I looked in this rack, and I just, by happenstance, I saw this CD. You guys remember CDs? I saw this CD, and it said, Winds of Worship Number 9, live from Sweden. And I looked at it, and I said, <gasps> I need to buy that. I took the CD, and I took it back to my dorm room in college. I was at uh, Central Michigan University. The reason why it attracted me was for one reason, one, because um, I'm half Swedish, and my mom's all Swedish. Okay? And so all of a sudden, I'm thinking, there's something. I just, I, I just it was almost like, now, at, up to this point, I had never heard worship music in the ecclesia in any form that, I, that could connect with my heart. I put this CD in my big boombox. It was this, it's huge. I put it in and pushed play, and you wouldn't believe. Out of the speakers came this rock and roll worship music. And I'm in a dorm at a secular institution, and I'm like listening as this music is playing and my heart says, yes! Like, you know what I did? This is true. I opened my dorm room and I turned it all the way up because there was worship music that spoke to me and my heart. And it was as if something came alive in me for the very first time 
this worship music, though, it was distinct because it clearly pointed towards worshiping Jesus, and yet it culturally connected with the, what's happening larger, larger scale musically in society. So it was like this perfect amalgam of like, oh my gosh, it's worship music, and it's worship music that I can connect with, and I, I had no clue that there was a vineyard movement yet <laughs> that I had yet to find. But I heard worship music that I understood. You guys, the idea that God saves people by allowing them to hear the gospel message in ways that they understood is the very heartbeat of when we say our culturally relevant message and mission today. So you have to think about the experience of an unchurched person who walks into the church for his or her very first time in life, and can they relate and connect with God, yes or no, is the question, right? One of the greatest compliments I ever hear about the vineyard, and I've heard it uh, dozens and dozens of times. I heard it a couple weeks ago. I walked into the church, and I felt at home. Tom, did you ever hear that before? Um, I walked into the church, and I felt at home. And they don't have words to describe what they experienced, but most of the time, it has to, what they were saying was, they didn't have to jump through 29 cultural hoops to hear God speaking to them. It wasn't as though they had been transported back in time 50 years and felt really out of place. The message, the music, the attire, the issues addressed connected them and their hearts to Jesus. This is the ongoing task of the church. This is the ongoing task of the church. And the question is, do we love people enough to enter their world, to connect the culture to where they're at? Do we love them enough to connect the gospel of Jesus to their situation? The Apostle Paul, that just we just shared that story from Acts 17. Here's maybe a summary of his heart. Paul said it like this. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. I have become all things to all people so that all, by all possible means I might save some. Uh, we were in a meeting, it was uh, um, about a book that came out called Deep and Wide by Andy Stanley. This is our growth groups last quarter. And when we were in that group, Caleb Hansen said, he was quoting somebody else, he found this quote somewhere. It was a church that said, we will reach people by whatever means possible. Whatever means possible. We will meet, we will reach out in every possible way with the exception of actually sinning. That's how, that's how far they're willing to go. Like, we'll do anything to reach people for Jesus except sin. What if the church kind of went that direction? And actually, Paul's, what happened here in Acts 17, pushes me to even go a little bit further in this thing called culturally relevant mission um, in our world today. So if our church is not culturally relevant, then we are ignoring God's mission and we condemn the church to a slow but sure decline into irrelevance and indifference by the world. And it, you guys, we can't afford to do that anymore. So let me give you a couple of practical tips today. Um, and actually, before I do that, can I just, can I just show you this thing? And we're going to dim the lights here. Let me shut this off. I, I just want to show you something. Can we do that? Okay, I have one more. Hold on. Okay, so the question that a world desperately wants to know is, is there a church that's willing to meet me where I'm at? Is there a church that's where we can belong before we believe? Is there a church of people that will really be light to the world? And I love it that Jesus says, you guys, you can't hide it under a basket. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You cannot take your light and do this anymore. We've been doing this for way too long. Oh, 
But here's what the church has been doing for so year after year after year. We've been hiding our light. It's, it's under a basket. And what if we were able to start to do this? Isn't that fun? What if, guys, what if we were saying, no way, we're not going to hide anymore? I love it. I'm like, woo. <laughs> what if we said, we, the church, cannot afford any longer to hide our light? We will be salt, we will be light, and we will do that all, all the way up to short of sinning. We're not, we're not going to, like, sin, but we're going to, like, reach people for reach people for Jesus in such practical, real ways. Reach them right where they're at. We can do this, guys. It's going to take our hearts, though, being stretched a little bit, because a lot of us are so used to church life, that we're like, well, we kind of like it. It's comfortable. It feels good. But guess what? When people that are unchurched and dechurched come in, they're like, uh, they're not going to be exactly cleaned up takes time. It takes time. So let's give them, them space and grace, but the church cannot afford to hide our light any longer. Okay? So let me give you a couple of Could you lift the, lift the lights up so I can see? Okay. So number one, practical tips. Here we go. Be the salt and light in our culture. Be this, guys. Make a choice to be this. Be a faithful presence to your neighbors and be a hopeful presence to your coworkers and those around you. They might even sense something different about you. Have you guys ever, has that ever happened to you? I've had multiple people saying, I like you. You're a little different. And I'm like, and they don't know it because, but they're picking up Jesus. Jesus sticks out of me a little bit, Right? It should stick out of you a little bit. It's okay. You, they'll notice. They'll, there's a little difference, which is the living God who is in you. Let the presence of God shine straight from you into the hearts that surround you. So let's be this light to the world. Let's be the light to the world. Number two, do not fear catching uncleanness. Jesus was right that kingdom life is way more contagious than uncleanness. The kingdom of God renders the evil powers over culture powerless. When there's evil in culture and the church wants to say, you know what, the church, Jesus' church is called to invade and move forward, the very kingdom of God renders those evil powers powerless. And the power of God is in you. We have freedom to redeem and transform culture without fear. This is what Paul did in Athens, Acts 17. When the Holy, the Holy Spirit will give us discernment as you interact with the world. There is no greater need, or there is no need for fear of catching the world. God's love is greater in you. Okay? So let's not be afraid as we are light to a whole new group of people, okay? And number three, let's be willing to take some risks, start ministries to reach people in their cultural frameworks. If a creative way for you to reach people comes to mind, do it. Fill the needs in our community. Um, we've already mentioned Kate Glaze over here, starting a group for moms. We need to start a group for reaching out to 12-steppers and those that are in the, in the middle of recovery. We need to do things that go beyond normal church stuff, guys. Um, so what is that thing that God's calling you to reach? Let's, let's start to have those conversations. Let's start to move forward. Um, fill the needs in, your, in our community. Uh, if a church is going to do well, there must— there, Oh, let me, this is my last thought. If the church is doing this mission well, and we are truly a light to the world— we're going to have pushbacks from this group called the separatist group. They are going to say, they're doing it wrong. 
Are you kidding me? You can't do that. And there will be pushback from separatists. And so, just so you know, every once in a while, there's still a little bit of the separatist in me that the Holy Spirit's working on. I'm a recovering Pharisee. And so sometimes that, that little bit still is in me, okay? So I'm constantly saying, God, help me, help me move forward. Help me reach people for Jesus in a radical new way, okay? So if, if we're doing this well, there will be pushback from some separatists, the hyper-spiritualists like those in the New Testament. And there was, Jesus had constant pushback as the mission was reaching out and he was being light to the world. Okay, let's all stand. We're going to sing a song, and um, during this song, and we're going to do ministry time in just a minute, but during this next song, if you could ask yourself the question, where's my heart in this process between being a separatist and a conformist, and do I land in one of those camps, first of all? Like, how much of my heart is in each camp? And then the second question is, how much am I being a faithful presence of Jesus Christ, being the hands and feet of Jesus in our communities? And really, that's what we should be. That's being the light and salt of this world. So ask the Spirit to fill that question in. Where do you land? And say, God, I really want to be your faithful presence in this world today. This is what the world needs. So let's sing the song. I'll come back up in just a minute for ministry time. But just process that. Maybe even just close your eyes and ask the Holy Spirit, where am I? Am I a separatist? How much separatist is in me? Am I a conformist? How much conformist is in me? Am I willing to step out and be the hands and feet of Jesus to transform this world, to be God's faithful presence in the world today? So just ask the Holy Spirit to fill that in for you in this moment. Let's sing. Let's sing.